Let me pray, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in. There's a lot in here that is hard and fun to deal with, so let's just pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, uh, we do need your help. We need your guidance. Uh, Lord, this is your word, and so we pray that it would not return to you void, uh, but Lord, that it would work itself out um, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, uh, in order that we would go and live it. And we ask it on Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all summer long, we've been looking at the book of Joshua, uh, and we've been attempting to learn, how do you live a life of strength and courage? Uh, That's how the book starts out four times. It says that in chapter one, to be strong and courageous. And what we've been learning is that the kind of strength and courage that the Bible talks about is not the stuff of superheroes. Uh, It's the stuff of everyday faithfulness. Um, In the 19th century, there was a man in, in Bristol, England, named George Mueller. And uh, he was famous because he, he did a whole list of extraordinary things in his life. Uh, he actually pastored the same church. This is extraordinary. Pastored the same church for 66 years. Um, he preached all the way up until he was, I think, 96 or something, and, and then he died. Um, he preached. Uh, he, he lost two wives. He preached at both of their funerals. Uh, extraordinary. Um, he actually, he was such a good preacher, he filled the pulpit sometimes for Charles Spurgeon, who is possibly the greatest preacher to ever live. Um, He started a Bible college. He raised up missionaries. He even inspired the great Hudson Taylor, who was the the famous missionary that went into China. Uh, These are some incredible things he did, but actually the thing he's most famous for is uh, in Bristol, he opened up five orphanages. And over over his lifetime, uh, in leading those five orphanages, he looked after just over 10,000 orphans. Uh, incredible, extraordinary person. Um, if all of that wasn't extraordinary enough, um, think about all he did. Started a Bible college, led a church for 66 years, uh, built from the ground up five orphanages, fed 10,000 orphans, clothed them, educated them, ran a Bible college. He never, in that whole time that he was doing ministry, ever one time asked for money from a person. He never asked for any resources for any of it. He simply, this is what he's most famous for, he prayed. Uh, He just prayed. And uh, he, he he would pray for the funds to come in. He'd pray for the food that was needed to feed them. And extraordinary things, just extraordinary ways these things would just show up everything that was needed. Um, Now, extraordinary things, but notice this, done through an utterly ordinary means. I mean, is there anything more ordinary than sitting in your room and praying? There's nothing extraordinary about that. And so what we learn from Mueller is this. You end up living a life of strength and courage when you string together day after day after day after day of ordinary faithfulness, service, and prayer. So you end up being extraordinary when you do that. Um, Now, that kind of life, the George Mueller kind of life, it's it's available to every single one of us, available to all of us. But the truth is, most of us either settle for less than that or we just give up altogether. Uh, We tend to do that. Three three reasons. There might be more than this, but here's three reasons that I think we tend to do that. Number one, we just, we find it too hard. So we find that kind of life too hard and, and we give up. Number two, we don't feel worthy. In other words, we feel disqualified because of some things that we've done. 
Or number three, we, we try and do it alone. Those we do it on our own strength. That's the reason I think most of us end up not living the kind of strength and courage that the Bible talks about. And, and we're going to see in our passage that what we have today is not an ordinary day. It's an extraordinary day. Uh, one extraordinary day where God extraordinarily empowers three very ordinary everyday means of strength and courage. And so Joshua's extraordinary day of strength and courage, it actually comes as a result of three things. And you'll see how these map on to what I just said. Uh, number one, ordinary service that leads to extraordinary service. Number two, Joshua's extraordinary day of strength and courage comes as a result of ordinary prayer that leads to extraordinary prayer. And then number three, ordinary victory that leads to extraordinary victory. Uh, So we're going to see that as we go through. So let's take a look at these because each one actually helps us overcome those reasons that we end up giving up on a life of strength and courage. Um, In the lead up to Joshua's extraordinary day, um, here's what happened. Last week, we saw that Joshua made a treaty with the Gibeonites. Remember, Lucy and Ethel came, and they were like, hey, look at our old clothes. Let's make a covenant. And Joshua falls for it, and he does it. And he makes a forbidden treaty. Um, And uh, word then got around that Joshua made this treaty. And some of the other kingdoms in the south of Canaan, they got nervous and scared. And so the king of Jerusalem, he gets together with four other little minor kingdoms, and he says, hey... Gibeon's army is, is actually bigger than our armies, uh, and we've heard about what Joshua and his army can do. Why don't the five of us get together and we'll make a mega army, and, uh, and we'll go and attack Gibeon. And so the, these five armies, they go and they surround Gibeon, and the Gibeonites then send word to Joshua for help, asking him to fulfill the treaty that he's made. And so now Joshua's faced with, de- with a decision. Will he continue to uphold his word to the Gibeonites and serve them, in their time of need, I mean, think of it. These people who probably in Joshua's world, they don't deserve it. They tricked him. They fooled him. Or will he carry on with his own plans? In other words, does Joshua, do Joshua and Israel, do they put themselves first or do they put others first? That's the question they're faced with. And without hesitation, without any hesitation at all, they, they choose to serve. And that leads us to our first point. Ordinary service leads to extraordinary service. Uh, Take a look. Verse 6, the Gibeonites ask Joshua for help. And then verse 7, immediately. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. And what's extraordinary about their service on behalf of the Gibeonites is actually this in in verse 9. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Now that tells us that there was no hesitation at all. Word came, and they, they marched through the night. They left immediately. Uh, it says they marched all night from Gilgal to Gibeon, which, let's be honest, means nothing to us because we don't know the distance between Gilgal and Gibeon, nor do we know the geography of it. Um, so here's what they did. They marched about 20 miles in the darkness, and they gained about 3,300 feet in elevation. That's a significant walk. In normal terrain, that would take about five hours, but they weren't doing it in normal terrain. They, were walking, they weren't walking along a nice, well-lit path, you know, that's been groomed. They're doing it through the night on rocky terrain, headed uphill, carrying with them their armor and their weapons and all the equipment needed for a battle. Um, 
quite a few years ago now, I was uh, invited by a friend of mine to meet him in Las Vegas to go to uh, the annual uh, bicycle trade show, uh, which is a cycling nerd at the time. I was like, that's the coolest thing that I've ever been invited to. And you get to go and see all the new bikes and things that are coming out. And so he's like, you can come, it's free. I'll just sign you up. All you have to do is get there. And I was like, okay, well, you know, it's, how long is that? I was living in San Diego. That's, a, you know, maybe half a day's drive, a little more than a day's drive. Uh, and then it dawned on me, I was like, I have this friend who's learning to be a pilot. And he has to fly. So he has to, like, get these hours in a, in a plane. And so I was like, hey, are you doing any hours in a couple of weeks? Because I want to go to Las Vegas. Do you think maybe you could fly me from San Diego to Las Vegas in one of these little planes? And he goes, yeah, sure, no problem. But he goes, since it's all day, I'll have to have my friend uh, fly us back because I'm not rated to fly at night. Because uh, at night you fly just with instruments. And he goes, so I'll just have my friend come and we'll just split the cost because we would have to pay for those hours anyway. So what's it worth to you? And I was like, I don't know, 100 bucks. So for 100 bucks, I flew in a four-seater plane from San Diego to Las Vegas Got to see all the cool stuff. And then that night after dinner, we get in the plane. And now uh, the friend, who I don't know very well, I just met him that morning. He's now flying the plane. And I don't know if you've ever gone between Las Vegas and San Diego, but there's nothing there. Nothing. And it was immediately, once we sort of got away from the lights of Vegas, why I realized that this other guy had to fly the plane. Because you couldn't see anything. He's flying completely by instruments. He could, you know, if you're just flying, just looking out the window, you could be going up, you could be going down, you could be slightly trending down, and after a while, you're dead in the ground. Uh, this is sort of Joshua's walk through the desert in the middle of the night. It's treacherous. You can't see anything. Now, as soon as Joshua and his army arrive, note, look at this, notice this. They don't set up camp. They don't take a recovery nap. No, no, no. They charge straight into, into battle because verse 9 says they took them by surprise, which means they charge into battle before anyone's had their morning coffee. And so it's almost an understatement to say this is an extraordinary act of service by Joshua. And it's service on behalf of, on behalf of a group of people who don't deserve to be served. These deceptive tricksters who coaxed Joshua into a treaty. And yet, without any hesitation, they march through the night. The moment they get there, they start the battle. Why? Why do they do that? Well, their extraordinary service comes only, it comes only as a result of their ordinary service. And we only get a hint of it, but it's there. Look again, verse 6 and 7. The Gibeonites sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. And I've said it already, without any hesitation, with no discussion, immediately they go. As a matter of fact, as it can be stated, so Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army. It would have been so easy for Joshua to ignore this cry for help. We'll get there eventually. Maybe I'll send a few guys, some token people, the ones we don't like. And after all, these people who humiliated him, they, they humiliated, they tricked him, and perhaps Joshua thought, this is what they deserve for turning their backs on their previous allies before they made an alliance with us. This, this is maybe what they deserve. 
But Joshua had given his word. He made an oath. He made a commitment to the Gibeonites. And what we see uh, Joshua and Israel doing is living out a biblical principle found in Psalm 15. Uh, not just there, but lots of other places in Scripture. And Psalm 15, it's just like Psalm 24, which we, we actually quote in our liturgy all the time. It starts out almost exactly the same as Psalm 24. So when I read this to you, you'll almost recognize it. Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Does that sound familiar? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Verse 2. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from the heart. Does that sound familiar? And then it goes on in Psalm 15, interestingly, to list a few more things. And then in verse 4, here's the principle, and it's, it's bright as day. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Verse 4, here's the principle. The one who keeps an oath even when it hurts. Now, we said at the beginning that one of the reasons people settle for less than a life of strength and courage, or, or we give up altogether, is because we find it too difficult But what Psalm 15 is saying is that difficult is actually the nature of Christianity. That is that that's the very nature of what it means to be a Christian is that you serve, you keep an oath, even when it hurts. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, he wrote this famous essay. I love the title. Uh, The title is What's Wrong with the World? They're great. I love it. It was in the newspaper um, back in the 1800s. What's wrong with the world? And uh, here's what he said in it. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And the point is, oftentimes we think that because something is difficult, therefore it must not be God's will. And so we give up. When exactly the opposite is true. That usually God's will is the difficult, narrow, humbling road. The road of service on behalf of others, even when it hurts. And you know how Psalm 15 ends, actually? It's really fascinating. It ends this way, because you would think, oh, serving, uh, keeping an oath, even when it hurts, that means it's going to weaken you. That means it's going to bring you down. But actually, look how Psalm 15 ends. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. In other words, whoever does these things, whoever keeps an oath even when it hurts, will be strong. Now, what's emerging here is this. Joshua and Israel, they went to fight for the Gibeonites because they already were the kind of people who keep their oaths. That's the reason they did the extraordinary thing, because they'd done the ordinary thing over and over and over and over again. We saw it in chapter 9. We saw it in chapter 8 when they made an oath to obey the scriptures. We saw it in chapter 6 and 7 when everyone but Achan obeyed the word of the Lord to not take plunder. You can trace it all the way back to to chapter 1, which means over time, planting seed after seed, they have become the kind of people who serve even when it hurts. And this actually brings up another principle that's emerged over and over and over again throughout this entire series, and it's this. And by the way, you can plug any virtue you like into this. But in this instance, if you want to be the kind of person who serves others even when it hurts, it means that you need to be the kind of person who serves in the little things today. In other words, you do it when it's easy, when it doesn't hurt so much. And then the more you do that, when it does hurt, you're the kind of person who does it anyway. And you can plug any other virtue in. If you want to be the kind of person who prays for big things, it means you're the kind of person who prays for little things. If you want to be the kind of person who's 
uh, overly generous. It means you just you give a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and, and on and on and on. And this is what trains your heart. You plug in any virtue you want if you want to be that kind of person. When you're really under pressure, when the weight is really on you, when it's really hard, when it hurts, you're only going to be that kind of person if you planted the seeds now and you did it when it didn't hurt so much right now. It means doing it in the ordinary everyday moments first. And in this instance, Joshua and Israel, Israel they're able to serve in this extraordinary way. They're, they march 20 miles uphill all night and then go straight into battle because they had already become ordinary servants. And so ordinary, only ordinary servants become extraordinary ones. You will not wake up one day and be an extraordinary servant. It doesn't happen. Only ordinary ones become extraordinary ones. You start with the ordinary and you find out that one day you're able to do the extraordinary. Now, for the Christian, our ability to, to do what Joshua has done here, to serve in this way, um, and to do it with urgency, even when it hurts, it takes on even more meaning for the Christian when we realize that we're only Christians because Christ served us when it hurt. Especially when it hurt. It means for the Christian, there is both a motivation and a strength for serving that actually runs much deeper than for Joshua. Because the Christian who really grasps how Christ has served them is a person who recognizes that our serving isn't in order to be served. It's because we've already been served. Which means the Christian can serve. Get this. You can actually serve altruistically as a Christian. Because you can serve without the expectation of anything back. In fact, you can serve with the expectation that it's going to hurt. You can do that because Jesus Christ has already served you. He already faced something so hard on behalf of you that he sweat blood. So that's the first point. Ordinary service leads to extraordinary service. Uh, secondly, then, ordinary prayer leads to extraordinary prayer. And in this case, Joshua learned his lesson that he should pray ordinary praise, uh, prayers. He learned it the hard way by, by not praying them. If you remember from last week. Joshua had an opportunity to pray a prayer. And in fact, to us, it seems strange. But for him, it was a normal prayer. It was, it was just a normal means that he had to go before the Lord to ask the Lord something. Uh, and, but do you remember what it said back in chapter 9, verse 14? It says, but they did not inquire of the Lord. Literally, they did not seek his mouth. They didn't see what God had to say to them. And of course, Joshua and Israel later learned their lesson because their, their lack of prayer landed them in the situation that they're in right now. It landed them there in the first place where they're marching 20 miles uphill through the night to go and save a people who should be their enemies. But when Joshua had the chance again to pray, he doesn't miss it this time. He takes it. Look at verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. Talk about a bold prayer. Hey, son, the thing that moves through the sky on the same pattern and does the same thing every day and moon, the same thing. You guys just stand still for a minute. It might even be arrogant to assume that you can ask God to suspend the laws of nature and physics for you. But I want you to think about it in another way. Think about how arrogant it is to not ask God for help in your time of need. How arrogant to essentially say to God, hey, I know you're the creator of all things, 
the one who actually put the sun and moon and the stars in the sky, the one who created dry ground and filled it with animals and and filled the sky with birds and the, the waters with fish. I know that you did all of those things. I know, oh, by the way, you formed the first man out of the dust of the ground. And when you made woman, you pulled a, a rib out of him and, and formed a woman around it. And I know you did all those things. But hey, it's cool. I got this. And how arrogant is that? And so if you think it's bold, if you think it's arrogant to ask God for supernatural help, how much more arrogant is it to try and do it alone without him? This is the lesson Joshua learned when he didn't pray in chapter 9. And this is the lesson that I think most of us are learning the hard way over and over and over and over and over again simply because we don't pray. And so let me put it another way. I put it... um, This is not normally my nature, but a harsh way. A prayerless Christian is an arrogant Christian. Joshua prays that the sun and moon will stand still, and that does not make him arrogant. It makes him about as humble as a person can be. It makes him the kind of person who says, God, I can't do this in my strength So much so that I need you to rip through the sky and help me out here. I am too weak. I am too feeble. I'm too incapable on my own. Verse 13. So the sun, this is incredible. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. So this is even like a, it's recorded in another book, it's saying. Now, lots of trees have been killed and gallons of ink spilled, trying to describe what actually happened here. Not only that, but lots of churchgoers put to sleep by pastors attempting to explain in too much detail just how it was that the sun stood still and the moon stood still for an entire day. And that's not the point of the passage. It's not here for us to spend half an hour debating on it. But here's what I will say. Something did happen. Something extraordinary did happen. God did perform a miracle in that moment. And I do have a view on it, which is far more theological in nature than scientific, because while the Bible is a theological text rather than a scientific text, and you can ask me about it later. But whatever happened and however it happened, the force of the passage is on the fact that God heard Joshua's prayer and intervened in his situation. That's verse 14. Take a look. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. And so look, look at what it says. Look where the focus is. It says here, there's never been a day like it before or since. And does it say, there's never been a day before like it, uh, you know, before or since where the sun and the moon stood still? Is that what it says? No. Look closely. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. And so the focus and the force of the entire passage is that God listened to and answered Joshua's prayer. And this is important for two reasons. One, it's important because it places Joshua in line with people like Moses and later on David and Elijah, people who prayed great prayers and God answered them. But secondly, remember last week, remember what it said. They did not inquire of the Lord. 
Joshua fails. And you might think after last week's passage that Joshua has no right to pray, let alone pray so boldly, because he messed up. And this brings up something so utterly important, I want to sit on it for a second. In my now 20 or so years of ministry, one theme that comes up a lot in my pastoral work with people is when I talk with Christians who are struggling in their faith, so many of them struggle because they assume their past mistakes separate them from the love of God and the protection of God. They say things like, how could God still want me after what I did? How could God still love me if I had this secret for so long? Why would he listen to me if I prayed to him? In other words, they find themselves giving up on a life of strength and courage because they don't feel worthy. They feel disqualified. I don't even need to ask the rhetorical question, do you ever feel that way? Because I know you have. I know some of you are. And here's what happens. We are stripped of our strength and courage and hope when we assume that our past mistakes separate us from the love and protection of God in Christ. But what Joshua shows us is that you can, t- you can make a monumental mistake. You can make a monumental mistake today and tomorrow you can pray. And the Lord will still love you and the Lord will still protect you and the Lord will still fight you, fight for you. And not only that, but do you know what the New Testament tells us? I mean, this is Old Testament stuff and it's in there. Wait till you get to like after Jesus has come and you see grace in its fullness. Here's what it says in Romans chapter eight. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And some of you need to hear that. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on at the end of the chapter. He says, after he's talked about Jesus and this incredible gospel, he then says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, all, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know that? Do you cling to that? Here's what I've told people for almost 20 years now. When they come to me and they're struggling with guilt from past sins, past rejections, past ways they've rejected God. Go and read Romans 8 three times a day for a week. Do it for longer if you need to, but just read it and reread it and reread it until it sinks down deep into your heart, so deep into your heart, mind, and soul that you actually believe what it says. And I love that Joshua prays this prayer mere days after he made a monumental mistake of not praying, of not seeking the mouth of the Lord. Do you know Joshua must know that he does this? He must know there is no condemnation. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
Do you believe that? If not, go home and read Romans 8. Do it for a week, do it longer if you need to, and plant that seed down deep into your heart, into your mind, into your soul. Now, there's one more thing that's important for us to note about verse 14, and it's this. You know where it says that there's never been a day like it or since that God answered a prayer um, in this way. You could read that and be like, oh, well, I guess Joshua, he's the one who got it, so good for him. Uh, there's a timestamp on this, on this verse. Uh, the timestamp doesn't reach all the way to August 1st, 2021. That, that is the date, right? The timestamp ends when Joshua was written. And so there wasn't a day like it up until the point of the book that Josh, uh, until the time the book of Joshua was written. And we definitely know this because when we read, well, we read the Old Testament, you meet Elijah and he prays prayers like this and God does these incredible things. But then you get to the New Testament and Jesus Christ, God the Son, has promised that all who are united with him have this kind of access to God the Father. In other words, the Christian can pray prayers like Joshua and know that God hears and answers them. And so, get this, what was unique for Joshua is everyday ordinary for the Christian. Joshua's prayer moved heaven and earth. And so does every prayer that you and I pray that is led by the Spirit, addressed to the Father, and mediated by the Son. And so here's what this means. All of your ordinary prayers are extraordinary prayers. All of them. Because they all go straight to the Father through the Son. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. It says that because Christ ascended to heaven and because through him we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace in our time of need, all of our ordinary prayers are extraordinary. And so I don't have any other application on this than to to say become the kind of person who prays. Don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. Instead, plant little seeds of prayer. Pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests because all your prayers are extraordinary. So ordinary service leads to extraordinary service. Ordinary prayer leads to, and actually now is, extraordinary prayer. And now thirdly, ordinary victory leads to extraordinary victory. And here's where it gets really hard. If you think the first part of the passage wasn't hard, welcome to what I didn't have Emmy read sort of on purpose. We only had read up to verse 16, so there's a hint of, in the reading of what comes in the rest of the chapter. Uh, but I didn't have her read it because it's, well, it's gruesome. Uh, I'm going to address it. Uh, one of the reasons that many people actually give for not wanting to be a Christian is because of passages like this one in the Old Testament, where God's people, and in this instance, God himself, kills a lot of people. And let's be honest, as you read Joshua, what you find is what seems identical to what we would call today conquest and perhaps even ethnic cleansing. It's something that the Bible itself even prohibits. So what what do we do with this? Well, I'll go into a lot more detail on this next week. So you have to come back if you want the whole thing. Uh, There's a lot more time in next week's passage to address this. But for now, I'm just going to briefly put it this way. One of the things that we know from the pages of the Old Testament and the lead up to the book of Joshua is that the people living in the land of Canaan were extremely morally corrupt. Extremely. We learn in Leviticus 18 that in Canaan, 
it, I, I almost hesitate to even say it out loud, it had become normal to rape your family members. Not just normal, but it was like a thing that in their culture they thought was good. It was normal for them to molest children. It was normal to do all kinds of horrendous sexual acts that were more of a tax on other people than they were anything else. That was a normal part of their culture. And beyond that, do you know what else it says in Leviticus 18? It also says it in Deuteronomy 12. Here it is from Deuteronomy 12, actually. Uh, It says, They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as a sacrifice to their gods. This was Canaan. This is the people that they were going in and driving out. And so in driving out and killing the Canaanites, God is exercising just judgment on a whole culture that has become so morally corrupt they had deemed it acceptable to rape family members and to molest and kill children. And we can only even slightly come close if you think about Hitler and World War II, if you think about uh, Pol Pot, if you think about Stalin. We can only come close. And so what God's doing is he's exercising just judgment on a whole culture that's become so morally corrupt, they deemed it acceptable to rape family members, to molest and kill children. And so one way to look at this is God is breaking into the world to bring a stop to it. The prayers and cries of lament had been heard and God is now acting to bring final judgment on Canaan now rather than waiting until the last day and allowing it to continue. And so that's what's going on in the conquest of Joshua. And again, I think we'll, we'll jump deeper into this next week. Uh, but God is bringing just punishment on an utterly morally corrupt people and culture. And so what's happening in Joshua, this is a one-time deal. It's not justification for a holy war. Not justification for anyone to ever do this ever again. And in light of all that, there's something incredible that emerges here in the story. And that's in what happens to the five kings. That's why I had him read that, you know, those five kings were captured. Uh, and uh, look at me at verse 22. In the course of battle, they captured all five kings and, and they sealed them up in a cave behind a giant stone uh, until the battle was over. And then verse 22, Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles, and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. Like I said, gruesome. Now, what is this thing about putting their feet on the necks of the kings? What is that? Like, isn't it enough to have killed their armies? Isn't it enough to have captured them? Is it enough that he's going to kill them? Why does he have the commanders come and, and actually put their feet on the necks? Why make a show of it? Well, look again, verse 25. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. 
And there it is. That's the siren call of the whole book. Be strong and courageous. We've heard it over and over and over again. It keeps coming up. Why? Because the Lord will defeat all your enemies. Even in the darkest days, even when it seems like evil will prevail over you, it won't. It can't. Why? It's because the Lord fights all your battles. He fights on your behalf. He will defeat all your enemies. And, you know, we've said this most weeks, but remember, Joshua is not the hero of the story. You don't read this and think, I'm going to think about Joshua later. He's only pointing to a greater Joshua, to Jesus Christ himself. And long before the generals of Joshua's army put their feet on the necks of their enemies, God promised that the greater Joshua, Jesus, the true Joshua, would put his foot on our greatest enemy and crush him. This is what Joshua is ultimately pointing us towards. First, it points us backwards to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, God said one day his son would come, and what does it say? He'll crush the head of the serpent. And we learn in the Gospels that Jesus Christ, God the Son, that he came, that he did come. But rather than conquer his enemies by the strength of an army, he, con- he conquered them by suffering on a cross. And this is so cool. I hope you've you got to just watch this thing. What did Joshua do with the, the, the kings? He put them in a cave and he sealed it with a stone. Rather than trap Jesus, rather than trap his enemies in a cave behind a large stone like Joshua did, Jesus was laid lifeless in a cave hidden behind a large stone. But on the third day, his stone was rolled away and as he rose from the dead and secured, he, that's how he did it. And so Joshua is saying to his commanders, the Lord will fight for you, has now become for us, Jesus has fought for you. And because of Jesus' victory, we can read Joshua's words to his commanders as words to us. Joshua's invitation is for us to take our own feet and place them on the neck of our enemy, of the enemy, of the sin that has ceaselessly tried to ensnare you. Joshua says, hey, put your foot on it. Of the lie that wants us to buy sin's empty promises. Put your foot on it. The demonic power that deceives the world and attempts to rob our joy. Put your foot on it. Of the guilt that you carry around because of whatever it is that you've done. Come and put your foot on it. And here's what's incredible. Even Satan himself, one day soon, the God of peace will tell us, this is Romans 16, actually says that we get to put our, foot, our feet on him to defeat him. And so far from wishful triumphalism, this victory is real. Sin will not have dominion over us. But he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so even though life can be hard and our experience can be filled with suffering, the five kings were shamed to point us to another day when God's enemies were shamed. The day when Jesus defeated them in his death. And that's why it's there. So what is it for you? Is living as a Christian with strength and courage, is it too hard? 
Or do you feel like you're not worthy? Or do you find yourself attempting to do it in your own strength? Take this lesson that we've been seeing repeated in every chapter of Joshua and start with everyday ordinary faithfulness, ordinary service, ordinary prayer, ordinary victory. And in the end, one day, you'll find yourself strong and courageous enough to do the extraordinary ones. Like George Mueller, you pray, God answers. Let's do that now. Our Father, this feels so ordinary to pray, but we rejoice that all of our prayers are extraordinary. Because by the work of your Son and through the leading of your Holy Spirit, our words right now are before your throne. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us. I'm sure there are all sorts of ways that Everyone here needs you to rip through the sky and come down and help us. And so, Lord, whatever it is, we ask that you would do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.